Artist Donald Sultan rose to prominence in the late 1970s as part of the New Image movement. Sultan challenged the boundaries between painting and sculpture throughout his career, using industrial materials such as roofing tar, aluminum, linoleum, and enamel. Sultan layers, gouges, sands, and constructs his paintings into sumptuous, highly textured compositions. They are often made of the same materials as the rooms in which they are displayed. He lives and works in New York City. Donald Sultan, welcome to the creative process. Looking back at your career and your, your paintings, what drew you to art? I know that in your family there had been an interest in art, but uh, different, different avenues. I think the reason that I was drawn to art is that I could kind of make my own uh, voice uniquely mine. I didn't have, it, have other people mm. uh, involved in it, like film or theater, where there's many people involved. Right. <clears throat> Everything could be myself. Mm-hmm. I had started in the theater, then I tried to move to motion pictures and television, and I found mm-hmm. too many people involved, too much mm-hmm. fundraising, too much things like that. Yeah. And I found that by going to painting, I could control my artistic vision, right. and that's what made me you know, go there. So I've pretty much stuck to that thought all the way through. And... As your themes have evolved, I don't know your very earliest work. Has it always involved these kind of bold silhouettes or explorations? Yeah, Yeah, they've always involved uh, a kind of uh, interplay between the interior and the exterior, of uh, between industrial Mm -hmm. exterior of building and the interior creative form of building. So the earliest work was more or less a, a dialogue between the interior of the studio and the exterior of mm-hmm. the city. Right. It developed more and more focused on that idea. Instead of two different images, you'd have the same one combined into one image, either a flower and a, and a street lamp, or a, a disaster picture and a fruit and flowers memento more with a kind of uh, sock in the eye in the center of it, a black lemon or a black egg, mm-hmm. or something that disturbed the image behind it and also all involved with weight Mm -hmm. and I've always used industrial materials and I've always used heavy materials which is a play between structure architecture and the fragility of meaning in art this uh, fascination with using new materials or materials that were not traditionally designated as fine art materials. Your, your father also had like a background in... He was a tire dealer. Yeah, but did, I mean, seeing that... Was sort of, that was the working part. Yeah. You know, I felt more close to the actual uh, American view of working, mm. of making as working and not right. illustrating. Right. And the use of a lot of those industrial materials was simply a matter of economics. Okay. That to work as big and heavy as I wanted, I had to use materials that were weighty and uh, inexpensive. So that's pretty much where I gravitated towards, small uh, or large objects that were heavy. It's interesting because as I look at them, the silhouettes, they're very memorable, you know, these outlines. It's how, well, as I like remember my dreams, 
it's like the idea of a flower or something or of the silhouettes of, of buildings and I think it makes them so much more memorable do you train yourself to look at things like say we're looking in this room and there's so many objects and I think a lot of people wouldn't be able to pick out the silhouettes is that something that you always been attuned to or did you learn over time I have a a kind of simplistic view of things, that uh, mm -hmm. things are what they are. Right. And uh, I never worry too much about what they look like other than what they look like in the art. Mm -hmm. Because if you say make flowers, they're not metaphors for flowers. They're actually yeah. made. They're mine. Uh -huh. They're not real. They're not yeah. representing a real flower. Right. They are a made-up flower, more or less. Mm -hmm. And uh, put into a circumstance where they're flowers. So uh -huh. a lot of the watercolors I did of flowers, I called them wallflowers because they uh -huh. only exist to be hung on the wall. Even the titles of my works are just generally what they are. Mm -hmm. And so the things that are, I found that if one made an image that was particularly that image in an abstract way, in some way, it was actually more real than if you tried to make it look like a thing that you were doing, for example, uh, a cigarette. Mm -hmm. If you just made the rectangle white mm -hmm. with a little smoke, mm -hmm. it was a cigarette. Mm -hmm. And it was as much a cigarette as a cigarette. Yeah. And so Black Lemon was really about compression. Mm -hmm. And it became such a powerful image that I called them socks in the eye because they tended to be like being hit in the eye mm -hmm. with a little black eye. And they were both weighty and also voids. Mm -hmm. So the paradoxes of looking at images like that is one of the things that animates art in general. It always mm -hmm. includes a paradox. And sometimes it's between the structure, the architecture, and sometimes the, the paradox between the architecture being strong and seemingly weighty and the mm -hmm. image being something like smoke or something very ephemeral. So you have a very fleeting artistic meaning and a very heavy support system right. and that's the dialogue between the image and the work itself right. and they're very uh, j joyful to me they're very joyful but then there are the darker pictures as yeah. you say the disasters the accidents or the the city pictures yeah. i guess yes but the flowers or the fruits are very joyful for me not that they are a real representation you mm -hmm. know like a real fruit but the pure color you know there's a lot mm -hmm. of purity yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's the thing. I wanted to make art that controlled, pretty much spoke to all aspects of life as we know it. Mm -hmm. Disasters, fruits, food, mm -hmm. that decay, flowers. Mm -hmm. We live with these things, all, all yeah. jumbled up together. Mm -hmm. And the disasters are just a continuation of one aspect of the sort of hopeless striving of humankind. The fact that you can have a nice morning doesn't mean mm -hmm. you don't go out and kill your neighbor. Right. And that's one of the paradoxes of life. It's mm -hmm. why do people do that? Mm -hmm. It's always existed. So that's why I like to make the two or three things. I, I stopped making so many disasters when the actual disasters overtook the other part in real life. Yeah. So, so that it didn't add that much to the dialogue. But I'm kind of going back to it now in mm -hmm. other ways. I've been doing some small paintings of dead birds and whales and the kind of extinction or extinguishing of small life. 
So you have still life and small life. <laughs> right. And I like, and I find them hopeful, but there's a certain menace too. The artworks of the silhouettes of buildings and you're looking up through the sky, through this gap. Mm-hmm. That is a very, like, New York experience oh, or yeah. other cities. You're talking about the canyons? Canyons, yeah, I guess, yeah. 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 Uh, I, yeah. I really like those too because it's so graphic and yeah. yet it's, it, it is quite... Like, like those are sort of literal views yeah, that we are. could have. Yeah. You know, we, we look up this, yeah. this strip of sky through the, the darkness of the frames. That yeah, really and like with this. the materials, you have the negatives canyon. If you turn the thing upside down, that's also a building. All right. It yeah. makes a building with the space on either side. Yeah. Well, so you have beautiful. a double play on the yeah. image. It's quite, it's quite hard to come up with things. You said you had a s- simplistic view, but I think that it's actually quite hard to come up with things like this, things that seem like patterns but seem so instantly recognizable. Mm. I think it is. I think that being able to isolate and turn down the noise of all the other details and to focus on the essence is, is a difficult thing to do, make memorable images out of that. Well, it's a long process of arriving yeah. at that. And did you, in terms of your approach, because you've discussed your painting as having elements of the abstract, but definitely it also represents things we can recognize. Did you have a period where you were doing more, more just abstracts, or did you get... In the beginning, I did. In the beginning, when I was yeah. a student, I was doing sort of minimalist paintings that were just yeah. one color, mm-hmm. were constantly applied. So there yeah. would be a thick, very slight change of gaps between the different color hues. Mm. and then some more thickly impostoed. Mm. But I found that I started thinking that there was no way that I could see myself improve mm-hmm. with that. Once you've become gotten that aspect of the work, that was a, a sort of a settled argument in art. Sure. And I could only go so far mm-hmm. without making them over and over again or different colors. So I decided to tackle working my way through the litany of images mm-hmm. and skirting to a certain extent the world of pop, skirting to a certain extent, the uh, temptation to do figuration, mm-hmm. but uh, putting it all in one spot and watching how the paintings could develop. Right. And so, so I'm still figuring that out. And so you've shown your works in public collections, in international collections and American collections, but it Am I right to say that it is strongly American? Maybe there are some groups of paintings I'm not familiar with that are more inspired by other places. I think that the aspect of the work mm-hmm. is very American. Yes. But the sensibility of the work can be many things. I mean, mm-hmm. I have been asked many times if I was influenced by Japanese art, for example. I was also using a European Mm-hmm. art of the post-impressionists and then some impressionists. I was using, uh, when I did the original flowers with the tar background, I was thinking of Flemish painting and Goya's and things like that in, in uh-huh. those colors. So they mix both European. And the Asian connection, it's more subtle, mm-hmm. and probably because with the first black lemons and the tulips, they were very simple, almost emblematic. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I was about 18, I was in Taiwan and I went to the National Gallery and Mm. saw the Sung Tapestries. Mm. And from a distance, I looked at these things and I thought they were just black balls. Mm. As I approached, I saw they were monkeys. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. But I never thought about it again until somebody said, do you have any influence of Japanese? Of course, that's not Japanese, but... Uh Uh, I have used Japanese imagery. I've used uh, 
sometimes some cloud imagery from, say, Japanese cinema, mm-hmm. but really not, you know, not specifically to do that. Yeah. Just because the patterns are so interesting. I guess it's it's the boldness that I associate with America. Yeah, I think yeah. that's true. But that's the working aspect of yeah. stamping it. I imagine you have certain motifs that you return to, and I imagine it's a happy formula, you know? Is it hard to find the new themes? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I have to t- have the paintings tell me yeah. what to do. So right now, I guess I've been sort of on a long relationship with circles. Yeah. And uh, they've gone from domino pits to, to oranges, to dice, mm. to mimosa, to the mm. centers of flowers, to buttons. And I'm tr- trying to wend my way out mm-hmm. in a way, and uh, they haven't let me go. Okay. <laughs> so it's been an awfully long run with these things. And, uh, you know, constantly f- nibbling around the edges of, of moving that into to a different point of view. But I like that, too, in a way, because it's a challenge. And now, you know, you you have conversations with you. You go to the openings, and you have the catalog is made, and and everyone has a a different interpretation of art. I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the beautiful things. Are you ever surprised by the interpretations that people have told, stories they have brought to their, their perception of your work? Have you ever been surprised by something that was someone else had interpreted? No more than the usual thing of when you do something that could be fairly abstract. Someone can say, did you intend to put this face in there? Of course, mm-hmm. there is no face in there. Right. You know, every abstract artist has asked that question because yeah. it's like a Rorschach test. Yeah. But it has no real meaning. Mm-hmm. So, no, generally speaking, I think people pretty much, there's not that much room in my paintings for people to mm-hmm. miss the, miss the uh, interpretation. Mm-hmm. I guess at first when I did the steers, mm-hmm. people thought it was a Picasso mm-hmm. kind of uh, macho image. But a steer mm-hmm. is just food. Right. It's castrated, you know. It's, it's raised for food. It's the bull mm. that has is castrated to make food. It doesn't, it's, not mm-hmm. a, it's not a bull. Right. So that changes the image. Right. So when you call it steer, mm-hmm. it's really uh, part of the industrial food chain. It's not mm-hmm. uh, the nobility of the bullfight. Right. People sometimes don't get that, but mm-hmm. because a lot of times, you know, people can't see the difference between a bull and a steer. You know, they don't right. really know the difference. And uh, I remember when I was 12 years old and I was mm-hmm. watching the horses at camp and I asked the counselor, how can you tell a male horse from a female horse? And he just mm-hmm. looked at me. You know, <laughs> But with a steer, you know, yeah. in, a, in the art context, people don't think uh-huh. that you're making that steer. Mm-hmm. You're making a bull, but right. it's, it's, there wasn't a bull. I see. So by calling it steer, you kind of try to steer people away for literally, you know, no pun intended, yeah. to lead them away from that image. Because the image that I picked of the steer was because the panels, when I had the tar mm-hmm. really stretched, reminded me of the hide. Of, oh. a, of a steer. Ah, that's true. So then I just mimicked the image on it, and I put it on a diagonal. When you were growing up in North Carolina, did you have a lot of encounters like with the natural world, like you're talking about? Well, we rode horses a lot, you know, right. but not not like English saddle, not like a hunts. You know, we more a cowboy. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. So I grew up riding. I haven't ridden in many years, but we used to camp by horseback and things like that. But okay. I wasn't really 
a major hiker or camper, mm-hmm. really. I mean, when you grow up in the mountains, a hike is the way you just go to school. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's not pleasurable. Yeah. It's becoming more rare. It depends on where you live. I mean, right now we're doing this interview in your house in Sank Harbor, so it's kind of rural. Or before, it was farming country completely. That experience of riding horses, and this is kind of disappearing. A lot yeah. of children aren't having access to it. So they have it out here. Yeah, There's a lot of horse riding, horse riding. More, it's yeah. more show. Yeah. You know, they don't have this. They don't have the same as the West. The West still yeah. has quite a bit of horse riding. But you know, in the cities, and and children are kind of sheltered, or they're yeah. not, they don't still have that experience. And I think that it's people forget that art making is a physical activity. You know. Yes. And all of these kind of experiences, I think, that are uh, awaken our senses to nature, to colors, to the seasons, are, are very important. Yeah. Well, also because art is changing and people don't make it so much anymore. They just yeah. videotape it. Yeah. You know, so when I grew up, America was still an agrarian society, but it's not right. anymore. No. So in the old cartoons, for example, Donald mm-hmm. Duck and the Porky Pig and these kind of things, people knew what it was about. They knew yeah. what a pig was. They knew mm-hmm. what you know animals were, the kind of people mm-hmm. that they represented. But kids today have no idea whatsoever about that. So they have cartoons with SpongeBob SquarePants and things that have nothing to do with anything. What is a SpongeBob? Well, these are those cartoons that kids look at today. Yeah. They have nothing, no relationship to anything Uh like that. It's strange that you would have to explain to animals. Yeah, yeah. you do. Uh, But because the animals in those movies, those cartoons, they personify types of people who were around the farmland. Yes. You know, there was the farm hand, there was the, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the interaction of anthropomorphization mm-hmm. of the animals mm-hmm. is uh, also goes hand in hand with mm-hmm. the cartoon, like Daffy mm-hmm. Duck and, mm-hmm. you know, these things, uh, Goofy mm-hmm. and Porky Pig. And, yeah. You know, these are things that people understood yes. and they were hilarious to them. Mm-hmm. But now if you show kids, well, they may like them, but mm-hmm. they don't watch them that much. It's strange. I hadn't thought about that, but it's something that interests me, and I, and I think it should, you know, interest us that the way society is changing, and and certainly there are a lot of benefits of technology. Yeah. I mean, you know, research and that kind of thing. But it's something I do think about. I do think about how much things have changed so drastically in my lifetime, mm-hmm. uh, the dependence on technology and the way. As much as it's a tool, when used improperly, it's really changing the way people interact, as you say, with their imaginations yeah. and with each other. Yeah, I think it's incredibly dangerous. Mm. I think it removes people from reality. Yeah. And I think that's why we have the situation we have now all over the world. They've just It's all made up mm-hmm. fears. It's all fears and, and terror that's made up. It's not right. really there. Exactly. I had a friend who grew up in the village right. at, in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And when he was a boy, uh, maybe late 40s, 50s, uh, all the people lived on the street. Mm -hmm. In the summers, they were on the fire escape, and the Mm -hmm. neighbors were all out, and they played in the street, and they were all there. They knew everything. They knew everybody. And then when air conditioning came, the windows shut. Right, yeah. Right. And so that was the totally changed the neighborhoods. It changed Uh the interactions that people had because they stayed inside. And then television has made it so people don't have to, uh, they can be alone more. Mm-hmm. So right. you can have people that, you know, young people don't have to go out and have parties and go to know each other uh-huh. because they can stay home 
mm-hmm. but it leads to kind of a loneliness, I think. Yeah. And it leads to a kind of desperation, which then leads to a way of trying to connect through a version of television, which is like Tinder or mm-hmm. online dating or whatever. You're, you're relating to people as a television. And then yeah. you have this idea of uh, if you, you, you see somebody on one of these things and you arrange a date and you're so hopeful, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go, it's like, yikes, you know, because there's no relationship yeah, between the thing be- and the person. Right. And I find that it, it leads to a lot of isolation. Mm. But that's just one aspect of it. I mean, another aspect of it is happened in the Arab Spring. First started in Tunisia, then went to Egypt, and uh, the media was just crazy over this, how mm-hmm. great this yeah. was. You know, people were in the street, they were taking care. You know, the, the one of the leaders of it was a Google mm-hmm. entrepreneur, young Google guy, and all mm-hmm. these millennials, and... Meanwhile, on the street, where all those people were, really bad things were happening. Yeah. It wasn't what you were thinking. False optimism. Yes, and also then, all of a sudden, blammo, right? Mm-hmm. And then the whole Middle East is collapsed. Mm-hmm. Now, can it be put back together? Yes, but not in the same way. But maybe that's good. I don't know. It'll take us a long time to find out. A lot of people are dead. Yeah. But of course, you know... So, I mean, you could argue that social media, that whenever there's revolutions, a lot of people are dead. Mm-hmm. And when you have a change of a regime or a change mm-hmm. of the world, and a lot of people die, and that's just what happens. Well, mm-hmm. that's not, you know, that's if it's your friends that are dying, it isn't so great. I think that sometimes this uh, illusion of being plugged into the larger world this way mm-hmm. is, is dangerous. People are selling you something at the end of it, too. Of course. Yeah, so there's no there, there's a reason why they've created these structures, because yeah. you're like, uh, yeah. it's direct into your home. Yeah. It's a free advertising. Yeah. I have mixed feelings about it. I love it for research and yeah, that course, kind of, of thing. Course. Even image research, that kind of thing. I let, you know, like to see old movies or something, mm-hmm. and I, I wouldn't you know necessarily have access to them so easily. And the way I see that sometimes they prefer not to deal with you directly. Mm-hmm. They want a device. Yeah, sure. Even when you're there, it's very strange. Yeah. That's, that's uh, I, I, it doesn't make sense to me. It's very weird. But, uh, you know, you you don't want to be the one person saying, oh, poo-poo on technology, which has its uses, for sure. I use mm-hmm. it. In the early 80s, I had a studio on North Moore Street. Mm-hmm. And across the street was a little coffee shop, which mm-hmm. is now a place called Bubby's. But before that, it was mm-hmm. another place called All Good Things or something mm-hmm. like that. And I would go in there and sit in the morning, early around 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy in there who was a very interesting-looking person. He was sort of had he was sort of a white Rastafarian, a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, more like a, a guru-ish-looking, kind of heavy mm-hmm. guy with blue eyes and very white skin and white Rasta hair, long. Mm-hmm. And we would spend, you know, maybe two, three days a week talking. Mm-hmm. And he told me, that he had invented virtual reality. And I thought, oh, great. Um, <laughs> but but he did. Oh, he It has. was Jared Lanier. Oh, oh, yeah, oh right. I read his book. But I never, gadget. you know, yeah. I didn't take it seriously. But he told me <laughs> yeah. that uh, he had done that thinking that it would help with uh, medicine yeah. to train doctors easier to do operations and all of these things. But instead, people have done other things with it. And then... I, I was reading a piece about him, and he said that he thought artificial intelligence was just another way in which uh, big companies were trying to get rich on the backs of the consumer. 
that no. there's no such thing as artificial intelligence to mimic the human brain because mm. we don't know how the human brain works. Yeah. And it was a very interesting point. You can't yeah. mimic the human brain by not knowing how it works. It seems like they're all steps towards eliminating the need to, to pay workers. Mm -hmm. And so I don't th like to think about robots' rights, but I'm just thinking about like human rights. And one of the things is it's all very well to say I, I don't want to work in the future, but actually our sense of fulfillment comes from work. Yes. And, but uh, robots, they claim, is artificial intelligence, but really robotics is a different story. That's, it's different, but the artificial yeah, intelligence yeah. is about eliminating, yeah. just anticipating our needs and what we to sell us and yeah. things and not having to pay for as many For example, uh, you know, these cars that are supposed to be driverless, you know. Oh, yeah. Why would you want one? Yeah. Well, Why would you want a driverless car? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I like driving. Yes, people told me it's a it's a meditative thing, but what it is is it's kind of when you th work it out is, if you follow that that thing is you don't have to make an effort, you you don't have to think, but thinking what, will be done for you. Yeah, we but, can do that for you. Yeah, but, just don't worry about. It. Don't, don't think about. Yeah. <laughs> don't think about that. We got it. Yeah, well, I don't. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. That's the way those people make money. Yeah, it's a it's just a way for more and more. People that have these companies to get more powerful and to make more money. And that's yeah. what it is, to make people fabulously rich at the top mm -hmm. and everyone poor at the bottom. And that's what they're doing. <laughs> but it has a, I mean, down the line, it has social problems because people who are not, you know, employed. Yes. Uh, restless. Uh, isolated. Yes. And full of pent-up anger. Yes. <laughs> that's just, what I'm saying. You're going to, you'll need a... Well, robot robot policeman. army yeah. to protect you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's. Did you read his book? I I I would like. I didn't you read are it. Not, um, you're not a gadget. Uh, Is that the I name think. of the book? <laughs> yeah, yeah. After I guess he developed virtual reality, he ha had to write a manifesto <laughs> against what if I'd done. Yeah. Um. But it's interesting. Uh, it came out a while ago, but um. Yeah, it's just identifying the, the flaws in our. You know, a boundless optimism. Yeah, well, we, I'm not so optimistic about that. And also, you find like with art, you know, these things, writing, you know, they take time. That's the other thing is that it, you know, a software program can't mm -hmm. do it. You have to, like you were saying, it's a process of discovery. Yeah. So it's sort of disrespectful for the human touch and thought. Yeah, mm -hmm. because it takes time to look at art. Mm -hmm. And you, most people look at a painting for maybe two or three seconds at a museum. It's very quick. Yeah, You can go back if it strikes mm -hmm. you, but really mm -hmm. to, you, to get to know or to why you like a work. So what you see instead is people you know, walk by to look at things that cost money. Yes. And so that's all they know, that mm -hmm. that's worth a lot of money. But that, mm -hmm. And so that's the way they see art. So if it's established that this painting mm -hmm. or this painter is very expensive, people mm -hmm. go... To see that. Why is it expensive? I don't know. Yeah, but that, well, that's <laughs> no, another I, story. Look, that's another story. But, uh, just to, but how to look at art yeah. yourself, uh -huh. you know, is, uh, I mean, maybe more people uh, shouldn't even be involved in the arts to look at it anyway. I mean, a lot of people go to museums that, you know, don't really care mm. that much about it, but they sort of like to go. There's always been, you know, artists that most people at any time admired. Mm -hmm. You know, because there would be public sculptures and there would be uh, mm -hmm. uh, painting, well, paintings and decorations that mm -hmm. the people lived with. And the aristocracy would have more of it, for example. But some of the Dutch 
if you look at those tiny little houses they lived in and then the walls were all painted with landscapes it makes it feel like it's quite beautiful inside you know oh yes you know it's just an amazing way of living that we have a nice way of living too mm-hmm. but uh those kinds of things create a lot of problems and they make mm-hmm. people a little more uh well, I mean, I don't know if they do. You know, I, I find if I go to a bar or something and sit there long enough, I meet pretty interesting people. You know, mm-hmm. I don't take my phone and, you know, I, sure. I, people are there obviously to meet people, but usually mm-hmm. they're on their phone. Yeah. But if you take the time, you can have a really good time. <laughs> no, there's still a lot of human treasure, yeah. but there's, it's just, it's just changing the way we do yeah. it. I'm going to take a minute to discuss Mr. Sultan and Mia's point here. In this interview, they have and will continue to discuss the differences between generations and the disconnect often experienced between art and science. Both are forms of creativity, innovation. Why has there always been such a disconnect? Art, poetry, and writing are all forms of innovation the same as artificial intelligence, Bluetooth, and vaccines. Both change to reflect modern cultures and zeitgeist of the times. Perhaps the disciplines are not at odds, but just cannot comprehend each other. I'm younger than both Donald and Mia. I have a background in global studies and political science. But I am from North Carolina and not too far from Donald's hometown of Asheville. I have seen the urbanization and sprawl he speaks of. I also understand his inability to understand youth and what the people of today want regarding work, education, democracy, and art. I don't know myself, but maybe that is why we are so drawn to art. Let's go back to Donald and Mia. Thank you. I know that you, you're also involved in education. You give lectures, don't you? What If I'm asked, I've given uh, yeah. talks, but mm-hmm. I've given commencement yeah. talks to universities and uh, art schools to their graduation. Right. But generally speaking, I don't teach. I never really wanted to teach, and uh, also no one ever asked. Oh, right. <laughs> so I know lots of schools. If you want, you know, like, even in the bazaar. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't. Think. I couldn't afford to do, to teach. Ah, uh, you know. Yeah. Now, but it, yeah. you know, even at that time, I. Yeah, I, read, I didn't want it. I didn't. Yeah, because I think that it, to be a good teacher, you have to really sacrifice a lot. Yeah, and just. And true. I just, uh, I, I'm just too. I had too much other things going on to no, be able like, to do it. I just wasn't like able making. to do it. But you do work with young artists, or you have like assistants. Yeah. So in in a, in a sense, you are teaching. Well, they're watching you work. Yeah, You're they, involving yes, them. Yeah. And so, what are some of the things that you find in you this applied knowledge? What do you find you imparting? What do you what do you find like it's important to have this in a picture? This is a well made picture. This is how you read the picture. I don't I don't say things like that. Mm-hmm. I ask them what they think of it. Mm-hmm. You, t- you teach by <laughs> que- asking questions. And then I'll say things like, uh, um, "Every mark you make is a political act," mm-hmm. and that's it. They have to figure out what that means. Mm-hmm. But that's true. Yeah. So when you make a drawing, I try to explain to people that. Your best drawings are going to be uniquely your own drawings, but you'll be afraid of them. Mm. And most people try to make their drawing look like other people's drawings. Sure. Because your drawing is a little scary. Mm. Because every time you make a drawing or anything you attack is making a statement. Mm-hmm. This and is you, me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah. it's me, what I think, and mm. how far I go with it. Mm. And it doesn't have to look like anything else. 
Right. But, you know, mostly it'll look, you know, it's like all children's drawings at some point look alike, right? So yeah. there's an innate quality to human beings' mm-hmm. abilities. But I think it's, uh, you know, with the advent of Matisse and uh, Modigliani and people like that, there's a way to learn, you know, that your drawing or Sheila, you know, your drawing can be uniquely yours. Mm-hmm. And that's where you want to go. But not in that, not their work. Yeah. But see if you can find your own... Oh, that's, way the, of that's one of the hardest things. Absolutely. It can take a lifetime. <laughs> that's right. It does take uh, a lifetime. Yeah. It is very interesting. That, and I wonder what it is unique about artists. I mean, in all the different disciplines, like in the other kinds of people are often so, as you said, being judged or not being enough alike, like what went before. But what makes artists have this other sense where they judge me, look at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a different thing. I don't know what creates that. Some people say it's like some even traumas <laughs> or their sense of well-being comes through this. I, but I think it's also joy. I think it's like all artists or all children are sort of artists. You know, yeah, they beginning. don't say judge me. Yeah. They just do it. Yeah, it's just fun. And that's it's what fun. you're supposed to do. Yeah. But it's hard when you get older. You're not a yeah. kid. Yeah. You know. It's hard to find the fun. And the first, you know, it's like the early, early, you know, my daughter, when she was drawing all the time as a little girl. Yeah. And I always said, oh, my God, they're so great. And I would always put them up, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when she got to be about 11 or 12, we went to school, and she came uh, back with her drawing. She'd say, what do you think? I'd say, well, I liked your early work better. Because <laughs> 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 I get that, too, from yeah. people. Well, yeah, the well, early They always work. say things yeah. like that. I say, well, eventually this will be early work, too, in another 10 years. <laughs> yeah. So. No, it's it's true, cause, and why it is is because the early work is full of the joy, the possibilities, and not knowing what you don't know. And well, you don't have to be that. You don't have to change that with your later work. Your work yeah. can also be not knowing. I always think that you never can fail if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> the best work you do is when you don't quite know what you're doing. And in terms of like <laughs> early visual memories, it could be like artwork or just just visual memories or memories, just things that like imprinted upon you, oh, that, that remained with you, uh, that might even find their way back into your work. But it does, that does. You or what some of them? A lot of the images that have struck me that I get drawn to, a lot of them were from painting. Mm-hmm. And some of them were from early movies. Mm-hmm. And some of them were from places where I visited, but mostly gardens or wild gardens that had mm-hmm. things that I'd never seen before. Right. And then learning what that was, for example, mm-hmm. while I would be working on it. But generally speaking, um, most of what I do had to do with my feelings about other artists' work mm-hmm. that I admired. And a lot of the industrial materials I used, like floor tiling and things like that, came from site-specific artists, sculptures, mm-hmm. people who built into the buildings. Right. And Art de Povera using, you know, oh. works that were just found, the poor, poor materials. And, mm, tar. You know, yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. Tar I kind of got from, uh, you know, from working in my father's tire shop, you know, mm-hmm. with the grinding of the rubber and so on mm-hmm. like that. But things come together, and you're not even, I wasn't even aware of it until people started asking me about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, a, I didn't, I remembered telling them about this man you know, being this black Mm-hmm. room with all this rubber and mm-hmm. smoking camels and mm-hmm. it was a very cool image I'll never forget the guy mm-hmm. but when I was doing it myself that's not what I was thinking about I mm-hmm. was really just thinking about the materials I was using and inverting them and things like that 
Mm. So uh, a lot of the things that are in the work sometimes emerge later. You understand what you're drawn to. Mm. And, uh, for example, I was never drawn to uh, paintings where I felt like I was illustrating something. I felt mm -hmm. that more like I was actually physically making it, right. carving it out, making the thing. And that's always made me feel more comfortable. Images, for example, one would be there's some little small Beardstadt mm. pictures of snow on a mountain. Oh, yes. Which is all gray with just these little white mm. lines. That's like so great. And... Mm. Uh, Clifford Still, some of his pictures, oh. you know, really. Well, I thought Clifford Still got things from Remington, you know. So mm -hmm. I follow, I mean, I'm very involved in the history of art, in right. art historical paintings, my tie to other artists. Mm. And I find that a lot of people don't know that much about mm -hmm. other art anymore, <laughs> really. A lot of students don't know anything mm -hmm. about art, only, you know, art from the last, say, 10 years or something. That's actually where the hole in my education is the very latest. <laughs> but usually I would know the past or the deeper past. Well, you have to know. I think yeah. it's important, but only because you are part of that if, yeah. as an artist. You know, it's not like there's no really great artist that doesn't have some tie into the past as he knows. Mm -hmm. And uh, but today, you know, you talk to students. I mean, they may be actually making pictures that do have some tie, but uh, they don't know enough right. about where that comes from. Mm -hmm. And collectors are even worse. They don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very few know anything. <laughs> they know Andy Warhol, and that's about oh, it. You know. Yeah. Well, that's the money thing. Yeah, that's worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, Andy was terrific. I mean, he yeah. made some terrific things. But not all of it is terrific, but it's, it's good. It was playful. The best works are... are you know, it's funny that big show at the Whitney is interesting. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting to see what artists, you know, are struggling at a certain level to, to, to achieve mm -hmm. and what they do and how they do it. Everybody's got to arrive at their own, you know, muddled way of working, right? Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, they're never that far from the tree. From their origins. It is interesting how you go back to that, yeah. what you're talking about, the purity of the initial impulse what was the earliest art you know our art was made with charcoal or mm -hmm. dyes and your hand mm -hmm. and then brushes were made with uh, horse hair and mm -hmm. i was still using brushes made out of hair and mm -hmm. sticks and this kind of thing mm -hmm. it's a beautiful life to make your your play yeah. your your life it's a beautiful achievement i think that most people I think that's the fascination that people have with artists. I secretly wish they could make their play their job. Some people do. Yeah. I don't know what people want to do now. I have no mm -hmm. idea what people are thinking. I really mm -hmm. don't know. I look at stuff that's going on and I think, what the hell is that about? <laughs> you know, why mm -hmm. are they doing that? But mm -hmm. why would you pay six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars for a pair of blue jeans with a hole in it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> What's the yeah. idea? Yeah. Why don't you put your own hole in it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we did that in the 60s. You just wore the pants until there was a hole in it. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, buying them with holes in them, I mean, it's, it's funny. You know, they shouldn't be, they should be cheap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, instead of expensive. But it's a status thing. It's yeah. a funny thing, like what people do. Like it, when you look at the history of clothing, for Christ's sake, the beauty of and 
expensive clothes from the mm-hmm. you know Roman times all through the. Well, that was like art history. Holy yeah. cow! Right and now, guys are paying for holes in their pants. I think it's funny. I don't know your collaborations with other mediums, but because you're there's a strong graphic element, uh-huh. obviously, with yeah. your painting. So have you worked with? Yeah, fashion? I've made I've made uh, dishes. Yeah. I've made rug carpets. I've uh-huh. made uh, scarves. I've made uh, bathing suits. Yeah. I've made... Oh, uh, I didn't realize how immense this was. (laughs) And I've made chocolates. I mean, designs on chocolates. Yeah. I've done napkins. Oh. I did the whole whole hotel in Budapest. Oh, that's right, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I didn't do the hotel, but I feel... I thought it was just the art, but it was also the the textiles. Also the textiles, colors, Uh and a sculpture in the middle. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's no, that is really complete. I didn't realize to, to what extent. Yeah. So that's the Donald Silton Hotel, the yeah, Art Hotel. Art called. Hotel. Yeah. That's an experience. Yeah, that was quite, to... quite interesting. Would you like to do more hotels? I'd more? love to do another hotel, yeah, but yeah. nobody's asked me. Well, well now they have it. artist <laughs> hotels, but they have yeah. you know, many artists do rooms and mm-hmm. participate in it. I would really rather do one that was like super elegant rather than goofy, you know. Yeah, I know, you know what you mean. You know, yeah. I was like, what they do with modern hotels, I find that. Uh, I mean, why do you want the bathroom in the room? Mm-hmm. I, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> I want, everything should be... Yeah. I think people should have their privacy. Right. I don't know where they came up with that idea, but a lot of the new hotels are like that. Yeah. The bathtubs in the room <laughs> so on. I think I don't know. Well, I think it's that the voyeurism, maybe. Yeah, well, going. I don't know what it is, but it's not for me. But maybe if you're twenty, it's great fun. But I don't think so. Yeah. It, I don't. I don't think I would have liked that even then. Uh, and you lived through the sixties. What was yeah. that like? I mean, sixties and seventies. I talk about. Well, the sixties. Yeah. I was pretty young. I was born yeah. in fifty-one, so I was by ten years old in nineteen sixty. By sixty-nine, right. I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. I was in boarding school. I was in boys' schools until I went to college. Okay. I never went to schools with girls. All right. So I didn't have the same. But then the sixties must have, or the seventies must 70s have been was, crazy for you. Well, then. the seventies was mostly taken up with anti-war mm-hmm. activity and music. The music right. of the seventies and sixties and seventies is unbelievably good. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I like about it today, you know, then was that if you were a female singer, you didn't have to be beautiful. Yeah, you could be a you know just a woman singing, and you know, they were good <laughs> too. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I think of like Janis Joplin. Or oh, oh and Grace Slick and yeah. uh, Stevie Nicks, and uh-huh. you know they weren't. You know, the only one was kind of sexy, and what she was a pop musician was Cher. I uh-huh. still think Cher is the best uh-huh. <laughs> of all of that. And so. In terms of other well, artists and those disciplines, different disciplines, were you, you weren't collaborating so much, but you were excited by, inspired by what was going on at the time. Then you were in New York from the late 70s? 75, I oh, moved okay. to New York. I was right. in Chicago before that. Okay, right. And so, and, and just that environment, in terms of like the artistic environment now, you've seen those cities evolve to yeah. beyond recognition almost, I yeah. can imagine. yeah. Well, New York is not beyond recognition. Yeah, but I mean, it's different. It's a different group of people than... Yeah, well, the main difference is that nobody can afford to live there. Mm-hmm. That's the big difference. Yeah. And uh, that's the only difference, because yeah. we still have, you know, the talent and all the people there, but they can't they can't get a place to live. Yeah. They're struggling to find a place to work. There was plenty of places when we moved here. 
so, yeah. so, Soho and Tribeca were empty, de- yeah. no, derelict buildings. Nobody was there. Gosh. And uh, they got driven out. I mean, it became a thing where the artists became shock troops for the realtors, mm-hmm. and now they move them one place to another. And That's crazy. I, I, it's not good for the yeah. city. It's uh-huh. not good for the art, and it's not good for the city. And it's uh-huh. certainly is the technology has destroyed the musicians. I mean, they mm-hmm. cannot make a living as a musician unless they're right. a pop star. That's it. We've talked about what you share with the young artists you have in your studio and the ways you learn to, to read pictures, to be inspired by what's around you. If you had interesting advice that had been given to you, insights that you'd like to share mm-hmm. with people coming up now, what would that be? I don't know because I don't know what they want. I think Do you, you should, if you're really an artist, you should you should make art as if nobody's ever going to see it. Make art that you would be happy to have in a little cabin in the woods, just by yourself. And you put it on the wall, and you would be very happy to have it. Or your mm-hmm. struggle would be with that, and not mm-hmm. to put anything outside of that. They're not going to do that. <laughs> but that's what I think I'd tell them to do. To do that in the beginning, you have yeah. to do that because you cannot uh, find anything of value by mm-hmm. thinking of other things than that. That's really fundamental advice. Actually. Yeah. actually, I think you're a very good teacher without realizing <laughs> it. Thank you very much, Donald Sultan, for this beautiful, creative body of work you've given us and sharing your insights about the creative process and for adding your voice to this project. Thank you're you. welcome. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate podcast producer was Andrew Medlin. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.